The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. David Kaufman, the Chief of Critical Care at Bridgeport Hospital, a teaching hospital affiliated with Yale University. His interests include sepsis, acute lung injury, and septic shock. Welcome, Dr. Kaufman. Thanks, Yasha. I spoke with Professor Cheryl Misak and Dr. Amber Barnato, and both of them recently published articles in the Blue Journal about the recovery from intensive care medicine. Professor Misak is Professor of Philosophy and Provost at the University of Toronto. Her academic work has largely been in the history of American pragmatism, the theory of truth and knowledge, and ethics. As a result of a personal experience with critical illness, Professor Misak added several subjects to her academic interests. Dr. Amber Barnato is a surgeon and public health specialist whose work focuses on preventive medicine and aging. She is currently Associate Professor of Medicine, Clinical and Translational Science, and Health Policy and Management. Her research focuses on elucidating hospital and provider variation in the intensive care unit and life-sustaining treatment use among elders. At the University of Pittsburgh, she is a core faculty member of the Center for Research on Healthcare and the Institute for Clinical Research, where she directs the dual MD-MS program in clinical research and the Doris Duke Clinical Research Fellowship, programs designed for medical students committed to careers in clinical investigation. She is a trustee of the Society for Medical Decision-Making and a fellow of the American College of Preventive Medicine. Professor Misak, in 1998, you spent the better part of a month in an intensive care unit in Toronto with ARDS and multiple organ failure. How did that experience change your academic interests and your career path? Well, I don't know that it changed my career path, but it uh, certainly changed uh, part of my academic interests. I'm a philosopher by trade, and perhaps the trouble with philosophers is that we think we can write about anything. And so I found many topics in ICU medicine to be very interesting, and so have uh, started to give talks and to write about things such as patient autonomy and ICU delirium, uh, ICU-acquired weakness, evidence and evidence-based medicine in the ICU, and uh, decision-making in the ICU. So I uh, find myself a frequent participant at uh, ATS meetings these days, and it's, it's become very interesting and, and so part of, uh, of, of my academic work. Professor Misak, in addition to the changes in your academic work, you allude to changes in your personal life, specifically how you feel physically and also mentally a number of times in your writing. I wonder if you could expand on that for us a little bit. So, so there were real dramatic changes in, uh, in my life for the first, I would say, two or three years after my release from the ICU. So uh, like I think many ICU uh, survivors, I 
exited with really quite alarming weakness, uh, and it took a long time to become stronger and uh, a huge amount of, of effort on my part. I had uh, really serious lung issues, and because I'm an academic uh, and uh, have to speak often without a mic uh, in front of uh, quite large audiences, the first time I did this, I found that I literally could not project my voice to the end of what was really quite a small room. And, of course, breathing is, is rather integrated with uh, how one thinks and how one is in terms of confidence. And so I found myself not being able to, the lung power to get my voice across the room, and hence I got more and more nervous and anxious, and this was uh, not a very good situation, especially since I was uh, giving a talk to the, uh, the heavyweights of Oxford philosophy, and it was the worst talk I've ever given in my life as a result. And it took quite a long time before... I started to be able to uh, project across a room. So that's just one of a hundred ways that my life was affected. I mean, generally, one has uh, you know a tremendous set of deficits when you have had uh, this kind of uh, critical illness, and and some of those deficits also, as the literature has has really made clear in recent years, are cognitive. So I found myself, um, you know, the business of philosophy is thinking. So having a cognitive impairment is rather serious impairment for someone in my job. But I found myself, we were on sabbatical in Cambridge uh, shortly after I uh, was released from the ICU. And I went to Cambridge's weekly philosophical meeting, and I asked not one question for the whole of that year. I just couldn't get my mind around the complexities uh, of uh, the papers that were being presented. And a few years later, went back to Cambridge, uh, again on sabbatical, and found myself asking a question, as usual, at every single one of uh, these weekly meetings. And that, to me, just uh, really showed a stark difference in, in recovery, really, uh, and how I was a year after ICU admission and how I was four years after ICU admission. And, and now I would say very much that uh, there are no lingering after effects. I have uh, complete full recovery. I, I play very serious tennis. I will go on 35-kilometer hikes in the Rockies, and I run and I swim and I bike. So I, I think I have no long-term permanent effects of my ICU admission, but certainly for three years it was something that I lived with every day. So, Dr. Barnato, it sounds like what Professor Misak is describing uh, is functional decline, and your study is one of the first to utilize a large database to assess the health status and functional status of individuals who suffered illnesses both relatively routine acute illnesses and critical illnesses that required mechanical ventilation. And you used a large population spread across uh, a bunch of different areas, geographic, social, and economic. Would you please tell us about the study population and the methods that you used to assess the functional decline among uh, the patients in the group who had a critical illness that required mechanical ventilation? Our research study used the Medicare Current 
beneficiary survey, which is a continuous survey of a nationally representative sample of aged, disabled, and institutionalized Medicare beneficiaries. It's sponsored by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They also oversample the oldest old and minorities. And basically what it involves is about 12,000 people in the United States every year are interviewed in their homes. You stay on the panel for four years and so are interviewed multiple times. It's actually four times per year over four years. And then after that, you rotate off the panel if you're a participant and and it's refreshed with another 12,000 people. So that was the sample that I used. And this is a both a community dwelling sample and an institutionally dwelling sample. So basically, just right off the Medicare rolls. And as you might imagine, the rate of hospitalization with mechanical ventilation is relatively low in the population overall. So even though this is a survey, as I said, of thousands and thousands of people, it turns out that even if you aggregate data over eight years as we did, there's still not that many people who are admitted to the hospital with mechanical ventilation. So for example, in the language of epidemiology, if we follow one person for one year, we call it one person year. And if we follow that one person for two years, it's two person years. Once we had all of our exclusions, we excluded patients who were younger than 65 and who had health maintenance organization um, insurance because they didn't have full records. We had 54,771 person years of observation. That's tons and tons of people. There were only 534 person years of observation in which someone had mechanical ventilation during the year. Now, moreover, of those persons who did receive mechanical ventilation, almost three-quarters died in the year that they were mechanically ventilated. So we only had 152 person years of survivors to look at closely to try to understand what the functional outcome and recovery is at one year of elderly Medicare beneficiaries who are hospitalized with mechanical ventilation. The measures we used are some standard measures in the field. The first is something called mobility disability. These are items that probably capture functional limitation that precede activities of daily living disability. And activities of daily living disability is the other measure that we used. So the mobility difficulty items are things like you ask a participant, do you have any difficulty walking two or three blocks? And they can answer, no, I have no difficulty, or I have a little difficulty, or some difficulty, a lot, or I can't do it at all. The other measure is difficulty lifting 10 pounds or difficulty stooping and kneeling. So just to put this in context of what Professor Misak said, this is not, do you have difficulty projecting to the back of a lecture hall, hiking 35 kilometers in the Rockies, or playing doubles tennis? It's something that you think of as being entirely functional on your day-to-day activity. You need to be able to walk two to three blocks to get to the bus. You need to be able to kneel down to tie your shoes. You need to be able to lift, you know, 10 pounds is like a phone book as you're carrying the vacuum cleaner from one room to another. So these are really very basic mobility abilities. 
So that's the first sort of set of measures that are captured in these interviews of Medicare beneficiaries in their home. And the other is the CATS activities of daily living scale. And this is probably most familiar to clinicians, but this is basically the level of difficulty a person has in stuff that they have to do for their daily life, bathing, dressing, getting in and out of bed, eating, walking, going to the bathroom. So those were our measures. So, Dr. Barnato, to follow up, you found in your study that the ADL disability score went up from about 10 to somewhere above 20 in the folks who had survived an episode of mechanical ventilation, and the score of mobility difficulty went from about 35 to about 45 in the same group. Could you give us a couple of examples of what kinds of activities changed for these folks? You just gave us some examples of what got measured on the scales, but but what kinds of changes in functional status would account for these changes in score? That's a great question and one that continually mortified me during the peer review process. Um, And this is where I think that as a, a researcher, I may have kind of failed my audience. My colleagues and I wanted to take those measures that start from something that everyone can understand. Oh, I think I understand what it means to not be able to lift 10 pounds. And I wanted to turn that into something that could be manipulated statistically. And so what we did is we took the person's responses to each of the items and we turned them into a normed score. So that if, for example, on those mobility difficulty items, if a person answered that they couldn't do the walking two to three blocks and they couldn't lift 10 pounds and they couldn't stoop or kneel, we consider them 100% disabled for the mobility measure. And if they said they had no problem with any of those things, they were 0% disabled. And that got us a score that went from 0 to 100, which is our normed score, and then we'd use some sort of simple math to grade someone anywhere between 0 and 100%, depending on whether perhaps they said they had a little difficulty kneeling, but no difficulty at all lifting 10 pounds, but some difficulty walking two to three blocks, if you're following me. So to get back at your question about what does it mean for someone to have a score before their episode of mechanical ventilation of 35, and then to go up to 45, if they are alive at one year, what that means is that they increase by 10% towards complete disability. And so, for example, if you break down those little items, it would mean they moved a couple down on their abilities. So if beforehand they had a little difficulty stooping, a little difficulty lifting 10 pounds, and a little difficulty walking two to three blocks, let's imagine that they moved over to some or a lot in one or more of the items. Regarding the activities of daily living, this is even more complex regarding the way that we turned the item responses into measures of outcome that would be easily manipulated statistically. So we used a technique called magnitude estimation weight of trying to account for the fact that if If someone tells you that they're having trouble dressing, they're not as disabled as if they have trouble toileting. 
And so what we did is we actually took every person's report of their difficulty item. Let's say someone had complete inability to feed themselves. That's the equivalent of about 25% total disability. Whereas if someone says that they're having trouble, a little bit of trouble dressing, that's much smaller. It's closer to 5% of total disability. Um, and so again, just to sort of try to put that onto the scale, if somebody starts off with a count of 10% of total disability of ADL and goes all the way up to about 25%, that might be, for example, acquiring a new problem with dressing, having uh, unable to dress themselves or being unable to bathe themselves. That would be an example of something that would get you that change in the ADL score. Dr. Misak, how well do you think these scales capture the experience of someone who suffers uh, some long-term consequences of critical illness? Do they reflect your experience well? Do you think they overestimate or underestimate the consequences? Well, I think certainly in the immediate discharge period, they reflect the patient's experience very, very well. So I was absolutely stunned and gobsmacked at just how uh, disabled I was uh, after um, I was unhooked from all the machinery. So I, I was lying there thinking, I can't wait to be extubated because uh, you know I can walk to the loo, I can uh, you know get out of here, uh, get back to uh, my life, and just failed to realize the extent of my condition. So I was put in a thing called a recovery chair, and its uh, feeling will stay with me forever. So you're in a recovery chair. Your arms are supported, your feet are supported, and uh, your your neck is supported. So you really are not, uh, in the normal sense of doing any work, you're not doing any work. And nonetheless, your legs are working harder than they have ever worked, as far as you're concerned, in their life. It's as if you're scaling Mount Everest, just sitting there. So you, you actually come to an understanding of just what the various muscles in your body do when, uh, when they are entirely absent and they're working hard just to keep you upright. So I think that uh, these scales of uh, real extreme disability from not being able to sit in a chair to not being able to pick up a telephone to then gradually uh, getting better and better, one hopes, are very connected in, in one of the points that I think Dr. Bernato makes very well, and that's that uh, we need to put in place dedicated and prolonged care beyond the initial critical episode. So if you don't put in place some mechanisms to help patients rehabilitate themselves or if you don't rehabilitate them, uh, it's, it's uh, very hard to understand how they're going to get from really zero to some, uh, uh, some reasonable uh, quality of life uh, functionality. So if you start uh, at such a disabled state and are left to your own devices to try to 
um, figure out how to get some rehabilitation. It's really not surprising that a year later or two years later or five years later, you're going to still be struggling because you're going to be caught into a downward spiral, right? So if you, if you can't do anything, uh, uh, both physically and cognitively, then you're not going to uh, try to do much because it's extremely painful and uncomfortable. And the more you uh, fail to do things, the more serious your disability is going to get. And I just find it completely unsurprising that, say, a decade later, uh, people are in real, real trouble when uh, they may, and, and I say may because the studies uh, aren't, uh, aren't in, but you know, they may actually have been in far less trouble if they uh, were helped in a serious way with the uh, re- rehabilitation project. So, Dr. Misak, there are several items that you mentioned that I, I want to get back to in just a couple of minutes. But, Dr. Barnado, as Professor Misak alluded, there are several studies out there that look at long-term functional compromise in survivors of critical illness, and I'm thinking specifically of Margaret Herridge's work of folks who survive ARDS. And I'm I'm wondering if you can help us put your findings in perspective along with these other findings and also with the burgeoning field of early rehabilitation and minimizing the kind of dangerous ICU care that may participate or may play a role in the long-term functional consequences of critical care. So let me put my study into context. We identified people in the Medicare claims who were mechanically ventilated. We didn't necessarily identify people who had prolonged mechanical ventilation, the kind of prolonged mechanical ventilation that Professor Misak had and these patients in the New England Journal of Medicine had with ARDS and much longer lengths of mechanical ventilation. So on some level, my patients in this study were perhaps a heterogeneous group that included people who were less acutely ill with less prolonged mechanical ventilation support. However, they were also three decades older than the patients in the New England Journal article. My mean patient's age in this study was 76 years old, whereas the mean age the New England Journal paper was 45 years old. And again, reflecting on Professor Misak's experience, I hear her saying she had a difficult time sitting in a chair, but then in her article she describes this incredibly heroic effort at pushing herself through rehabilitation that involved intense physical activity, the kind of physical activity that most people who are 20-year-old don't do, right? And try to imagine a 76-year-old being able to push themselves through that kind of rehabilitation, even if it were supervised by a physical therapist. In other words, my population in this study, which is, again, Medicare beneficiaries at least 65 and older who have fee-for-service coverage, they probably make up the vast majority of people in the United States, it's about 50%, uh, who are mechanically ventilated for not more than 96 hours every year. And they're really different than these 45-year-olds. Not only do they have less 
of this ability to recover less resiliency. They're already experiencing the sarcopenia and frailty of aging, but they also have an assemblage of chronic comorbidities, uh, even including cognitive impairment. So I feel like we're in some way talking about apples and oranges here. Um, We're talking about kind of bread and butter patients in the ICU who uh, have acute respiratory failure, some of whom are uh, requiring prolonged mechanical ventilation of 10 days or more. But a lot of them are only on the vent for four days. And yet, three-quarters of them are dead at a year, and the ones who are still living have severe disability in activities of daily living. So I guess the thing I would want to um, emphasize, though, in a, in a light that brings all these authors together is that this is an incredibly fruitful area of research. My research interest and expertise for years has been understanding decisions to use mechanical ventilation among people who die. And so I've been really interested in how we die in the United States in the intensive care unit. And only recently have I started getting interested in, okay, well, let's take it for granted that a great deal of uh, these folks die but what about the survivors? What is their life like? And I find that it's a really fruitful and interesting area of research, uh, no less challenging, no less morally fraught, but it's really important that we continue to keep our eye on this population. Well, you know, I think, uh, as Professor Misak would probably say, that when, when you talk about the validity of a, of a set of observations or the validity of an evidence base, the similarities between your findings and Dr. Harridge's findings suggest that they're quite robust and generalizable because, as you say, they're sort of in apples and oranges populations. Uh, Professor Misak, it sounds like you've made a a fairly full recovery, uh, although it's taken many years. How do you think your experience, both in the first few years after your illness and then in the period of time where you've gotten to a full recovery, how do you think that experience ought to inform the work of clinicians and researchers in critical care medicine? In other words, what words of wisdom would you give us that help put our work in a perspective? Let me first uh, try to respond to something that Dr. Barnato uh, just said. Uh, let me try, that is, to link up the two different uh, patient populations, the one in her study and the one in uh, Dr. Herridge's study. And you must uh, keep in mind that I'm not a medic, and so uh, I'm not speaking uh, from any perspective of expertise here. But, uh, but it seems to me that there are studies in in exercise physiology, for instance, that show that the biggest bang for the exercise buck is, in fact, with elderly uh, people. So uh, the population that uh, gets the biggest improvement from taking up an exercise regime is the over 65 population. And so it it may be that, that the very same phenomenon is in place for 40-year-olds like myself who get out of the ICU and who have a really serious and deep experience with exercise and and sport, but also with with an elderly population, um, an elderly patient with, say, no experience uh, of exercise. And that's that both populations can, if they push themselves as appropriate for them with the right supports, Uh, find that they get 
better outcomes. And uh, that is, after all, what, what we're looking for, both with the 40-year-old and with the 70-year-old. You're just going to get a slightly different kind of uh, outcome. But if you, if you look at people who get their hips replaced, they are put onto a really serious uh, rehabilitation regime, even if they're 75 and it's no doubt harder for them than it is for a 40-year-old with with a hip replacement. But nonetheless, the view is that uh, if you don't do the rehab uh, at the age of 75, you're going to be worse off than if you uh, do do the rehab. And so this this takes me to answering uh, the direct question that was put to me, how do I think that uh, my experience ought to inform the work of clinicians and researchers in critical care medicine. So first, let me take the clinicians part of the question. Um, I had just a shocking difference of experience uh, coming out of the ICU, completely and utterly debilitated, than I did a decade later coming out of a knee reconstruction. So I blew my knee out on the tennis court and needed uh, to have it uh, fully reconstructed. And before I went, uh, months before I went into surgery, uh, I was locked into a prehab regime. Uh, As I came out of surgery, I had exercises to do, and all of my friends who had had these knee reconstructions said to me, the only important thing that you need to do is to get your team in place before you go in into the OR, you need to find three physiotherapists because you're only going to find one of them in the end who's perfect for you, and you're going to need to find this and this and this and get your team in place uh, before the end, uh, before the operation. And the surgeon kept his eye on, on the rehabilitation in a very consistent, steady way. So I had a vast amount of attention and scrutiny uh, paid to my knee surgery rehabilitation, yet I had absolutely no attention and scrutiny paid to my rehabilitation um, after uh, my ICU admission, which was so much more serious. So I had, so I'll just give you two examples of the kinds of rehabilitation I had. I had extreme neuropathy that was very painful and actually made any kind of exercise impossible because on the slightest bit of exertion, I had a a roaring of fire take over my body from my feet up. And I went to a physiotherapist and they hooked me up to a little TENS machine and they said, no problem, this will sort you out in, in a couple of weeks. And, and that was the physiotherapy that I had after um, my ICU admission. And then two years later, when I was still struggling on the tennis court now, playing in, the, you know, in a very, very good uh, city league, uh, I was still having trouble breathing uh, on real serious exertion and went to a very well-known consultant uh, respirologist who said to me, uh, you know, don't you understand the severity of what happened to you? Why are you continuing to push yourself? Uh, you should just stop all of uh, this attempt to, you know, get back playing proper tennis and, you know, go to the gym and um, work out in a very mild fashion once or twice a week and, you know, just cease and desist. So there was very little 
if any at all, rehabilitation on offer to me after my ICU admission, and yet a tremendous amount on offer to me after this far less serious uh, knee reconstruction. So I really think that uh, this is something that clinicians need to pay attention to, given that they pay attention to it in all sorts of other kinds of medicine, like orthopedics and like uh, uh, stroke patients and the like. In terms of, uh, of researchers in critical care medicine, I, c- I couldn't agree with Dr. Bernato more that this is just a really interesting, uh, fruitful area of medicine. As more and more people survive uh, intensive care units and as uh, critical care physicians get better and better at hauling people away from death door, you want to make sure that the quality of life of uh, these patients is as good as it can be in, again, precisely the way that you want to make sure that the quality of life of people who have had strokes is the best that it, very, uh, that it can be. And in order for clinicians to do that, uh, much more research has to be done on uh, just the kind of outcomes that uh, intensive care unit patients suffer. So I think that the work that uh, Dr. Bernato and Dr. Herridge has done uh, is really uh, extremely valuable, and I applaud it. Um, I'd like to respond to what Professor Misak mentioned. I think her analogy is so powerful that someone can be hauled away from death's door in the ICU and receive minimal rehabilitation formally after that experience, but that uh, an orthopedic procedure for knee reconstruction involves an incredibly intensive uh, pre- and post-operative regime of rehabilitation. I think the other thing that is um, particularly powerful about that analogy is that one must imagine, again, this is only a hypothesis, but one must imagine that if we were to do a better job of rehabilitating folks after surviving intensive care unit, and in this instance, I'm thinking particularly of my 76-year-old patients, Um, not only would it improve their functional outcomes, but because function basically helps not just their physical and mental well-being, but it also has an effect on their survival, it's plausible that by emphasizing functional recovery, one might actually increase longevity in these survivors of intensive care. And um, as a researcher, I will put out that that is an empiric question that we could assess with a randomized trial. Uh, and I, I think that's uh, a really exciting, um, exciting opportunity for, uh, for our research community. So I spoke with Professor Cheryl Misnick and Dr. Amber Barnato about their recent publications in the Blue Journal. Dr. Barnato's work, Disability Among Elderly Survivors of Mechanical Ventilation, was published in the Blue Journal on April 15, 2011. Professor Misak's article, ICU Acquired Weakness, Obstacles and Interventions for Rehabilitation, was published in the April 1, 2011 edition of the Blue Journal. We also briefly discussed the article, Functional Disability, Five Years After Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on April 7, 2011. On behalf of the Blue Journal Podcasts, thanks for listening.